0: 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 13. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, "'Draw your sword and run me through,' or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshon. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshon. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshon and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days.
1: It's good to be together to worship Together, especially with uh, so many gone up to family camps, some 70 to 80 families from coal, and uh, so it's great to have you here with us today as they're fellowshipping up there. I want to begin with a difficult question this morning for you to consider Do you believe in hell? That is, do you believe in a literal place of eternal punishment? I like what G.K. Chesterton said when asked about his views of hell. He said, "Well, I cannot speak from personal experience," he replied, "it seems a place to be avoided." <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> Surveys over the past 20 years or so have shown a huge change in people's thinking about hell in the general population. Fewer and fewer people believe in any kind of eternal place of judgment called hell. But what's more concerning is that more and more people who call themselves born-again believers, evangelicals, and folks, that's us, that's the category we fit in, more and more people in our category, and I'm sure some of you, are saying they don't believe in a literal hell. Now, let me just say that, straightforward, up (laughs) front, that such thinking is not influenced by the Bible, but it's influenced by our culture, which emphasizes acceptance and tolerance of everyone and every point of view. How can you say that you're going to heaven and that the person next to you is going to hell? How can you say something like that? It sounds so judgmental, doesn't it? And there are strong voices in the evangelical community like Rob Bell in his book Love Wins that question the existence of hell. Rob Bell, for example, writes early in the book, of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place and every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Now, I understand those are good questions. They are good questions as we wrestle with God's character and who he is. But Rob Bell and others go on to seem to say that God therefore must find a way to save everybody if he's really loving. The problem with this is it denies what the scriptures say very clearly about an eternal place of judgment and it denies God's justice and his holiness. While such thinking is appealing because we want to think of God as a loving a loving God who somehow can save everybody and does save everybody. This kind of thinking is thoroughly unbiblical. As many have pointed out, a number of books responds. Here's one called God Wins by Mark Galley. That's a response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. It's a critique. He quotes C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers. He says this, C.S. Lewis said of hell, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and specially, of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Dorothy Sayers, another broad-minded Christian, claimed we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Those are strong words. The New Testament has a lot to say about eternal punishment for sin. Sometimes we think the Old Testament God is harsh, but the New Testament God is loving. Believe me, the New Testament has a lot more to say about eternal punishment for sin than the Old Testament Jesus speaks often of an eternal judgment that's coming into the world, one of the places we could turn to a number of places, but Matthew 25, in his whole parable of the sheep and the goats, he ends this way, these, this is verse 46 of Matthew 25, these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You can't claim that there's eternal life, according to what Jesus says, without understanding that there is eternal punishment as well. So Jesus is very clear about that. Today we're looking at 1 Samuel 31, the end of Saul's life, King Saul. He has reigned for 40 years. God has reached out to him over and over again, giving him many opportunities to respond. But today we see the end of the story. He's chosen, a way, he's chosen to walk away from Yahweh, from God. He's chosen to go his own way. And today we see the final consequences of that in his earthly life. And the story of Saul in his life causes us to wrestle with God's justice and God's love and what that means. And how God chooses to punish sin. And this passage, this story will help us remember the judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Coming, Pray with me, would you? Lord, we bow before you as a people that needs to understand you more fully. This whole mystery of judgment and punishment is something that is hard for us sometimes. We pray that we would take on your mind, that we would hear from you, that we would submit to what your scriptures say to have your perspective on this so that we might be motivated to share the truth with others and to walk with you more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, it's this huge battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Way back in chapter 28, verse 4 and 5, it says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the, the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. It's a huge army that gathered. So Saul was terrified, so he decided, I, I've got to get help here, I, I've got to talk to Samuel. So he goes to the witch of Endor, the medium, to try to get help. And all she says is, through Samuel, as Samuel comes up, And speaks to him, Samuel says, Tomorrow, when the battle ensues, you shall be with me. You will die, in other words. So that's the message that Saul got. And now they've gathered for the war, for the battle. I want to show you just a picture of that area. This is the plain of Jezreel, this whole big valley. It's also, by the way, known as the Valley of Armageddon where the final battle will take place, according to scriptures. And in this battle, the Israelites are gathered over on this side, near Mount Gilboa, up at the foot of this mountain here. And out there is the huge Philistine army. And Saul looks at this huge army, and he is terrified. The battle has arrived. So in verse 1 of chapter 31, it says, They were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, And fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Another picture for you. So here's the plain down here. They're they're running away. They're afraid. They come running up Mount Gilboa to get away. This is how it looks today. And the Philistines are shooting. The archers are shooting and picking off the Israelites as they see them scrambling up the hillside and as they chase them. It was a terrible destruction. The Israelites are getting destroyed by the Philistines. It says in verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The word there, it says, they overtook Saul and his sons. That, that word is one that means cling to. Uh, It's actually used of a covenant term in marriage, of clinging to one another in marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's the same word. And, And so the writer here uses that word to describe what it's like for the Israelites as the Philistines are clinging to them. They cannot get away. They cannot escape. It's a picture of just this battle and this, uh, they're trying to flee, and no matter where they turn, the Israelites are on their tail, clinging to them like glue. It's a terrifying picture of pursuit, like being run down by dogs. <laughs> I remember as uh, a high school student, I was a runner, distance runner. One morning, I got up real early and was running about six in the morning, and I was running around our town, five mile loop, and running through one part of town, around the outside, and these three dogs came at me. Big dog, medium-sized and a small one. But they were all mean, no matter what size they were. And they came running up to me, barking, so I froze. They didn't know what to do, and they came right up to me, and then they slowly backed off. But every time I moved at all, they came after me again, and then they would slowly back off when I froze. While I stood there for a while, I didn't know what to do because they were not letting up. I finally decided... Maybe if I reach down and grab a rock and I can hit one or something, maybe it'll scare them. So I reached down real fast, threw a rock, totally missed. They came at me, and I was terrified. I took off running. And I ran across this big grassy field. I couldn't see much. It was there. The dogs were nipping at my heels. I was running full bore, and I tripped and fell on my face. Quickly rolled over just to see the dogs coming at me, and in my terror, I just yelled. And somehow my yelling scared them, and they turned around and took off, and I ran home. I think I made record time getting home. I think I would have qualified for the Olympics that year. But for me, that's a picture of what Saul and his sons are going through here in the Israelites. They are being run down by the Philistines, they are terrified, running for their lives, and things are looking bad says, Jonathan, all three sons of Saul that were in the battle, but Jonathan, the godly Jonathan, the one who was loyal to David, who was struck down and killed. I'm struck by that, you know, that Jonathan, though he was loyal to David and he knew David would be the new king, yet he remained loyal to his own ungodly father. And he was willing to lay down his life for his own father who did not deserve it. What a wonderful picture of faithfulness and a servant kind of love we see in Jonathan. Verse 3, it says, The battle pressed hard against Saul. Literally, it was heavy against Saul. It was pressing on him and he could not get away and he felt the weight of the battle upon him. And the archers found him and he was badly wounded as he runs trying to hide in the forest on Mount Geboa. The arrows are coming, and though he has full armor on, there are cracks and crevices in his armor, and it says the arrows, the archers, found those cracks. And he became badly wounded. Things are looking bad for him. He cannot escape. So then it says, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. He's terrified of being mistreated by the Philistines, which was reasonable. They were a cruel people. If they had found him alive, they would have tortured him, almost for sure. We've seen what they did to his body after he died, when Valerie read the rest of the chapter. So he's terrified, and in his terror, he says, Run me through, armor bearer. But the armor bearer refuses to do that. Just like David, Saul's former armor-bearer, refused to kill Saul, though he had opportunity to, so now his current armor-bearer refuses to kill Saul as well. Saul wants a mercy killing. Dr. Kevorkian's not around. He's looking for a way out. So he falls on his own sword. He commits suicide. He takes his own life. What a tragic ending to Saul's life. The people had demanded a king way back early in First Samuel. And so God said, okay, you can have the kind of king that you would choose. Tall, handsome, brave, a warrior. And that's who Saul was. God worked with him for 40 years. And early on in his reign, he won some wonderful victories for the people of God, for the people of Israel defeated the Ammonites and the Philistines in several battles. But as time went on, though God gave him every opportunity, though God anointed him with the Spirit at one point, and he prophesied, though God spoke to him through Samuel and all kinds of things, yet Saul, over time, continued to walk away from God, to turn his back on God, to reject a relationship with God. For 40 years, God allowed him to be king, and yet in the end, he paid the consequences for turning his back on God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Uh, Sin always pays its wages. Sin must always be paid for. There's always consequences to sin. Sin must always be punished. According to the scriptures. So either we pay for it ourselves or by faith we trust that Jesus took the punishment on himself for us on the cross. Those are the only two options. Because sin must be paid for. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Should not perish. All of us are destined for hell, folks. Every one of us. Jesus goes on to say that, in fact, in that passage. We often don't read on in John chapter 3, but let me read on for you the next few verses after John three sixteen. 16. Again, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Get this, verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that all mankind is under judgment. All of us. All of us. And we have our choice to either stay there or trust in Jesus taking our punishment for us, the punishment we deserved. Those are really the only two options to believe that He paid our debt on the cross, or we pay the debt ourselves. There's a recent survey by George Barna about hell, and it just shows how fewer and fewer people are believing in it. But it was interesting, though still, close to 50% of the people believed in hell. It said one half of 1% of all those surveyed thought that they were going to hell. You know, we all kind of look around and think, well, there's people worse than me, so obviously I'm not going to hell, but they might be. Very few of us think we are. <laughs> but the truth of the Scriptures is we all are headed there unless we put our faith in Christ. There is no relative, some people better than others. That, that is not how it's determined. Because we're all sinful, because we've all turned our backs on God, The only option is either we trust in Jesus or we've placed ourselves headed for hell. Why did Saul get rejected? I mean, honestly, if you look at Saul's life and compare it to David's in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's a good question. David is a man after God's own heart, but if you look at their behavior... Saul is not, really, doesn't seem any worse than David. Yes, Saul disobeyed God. Yes, Saul went to a medium. Yes, Saul killed people he shouldn't have and didn't kill people God told him to. But David committed adultery and murder, lied, deceived, rejected God at times in his life. So why did Saul get rejected and... Not David. Well, you know what? There's a commentary about Saul's life in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. It's a parallel passage to the one we're looking at today. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it recounts Saul's death at the hand of the Philistines. But it adds a commentary. The last couple verses in 1 Chronicles 10. Let me read those to you. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Where it says he died for breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. The word that's used there is a word that's used for a marriage covenant, a covenant of a relationship where you commit adultery, you're unfaithful to your spouse. And then it says he didn't seek guidance from God, but he sought guidance elsewhere. So what, what is it saying about why Saul gets condemned? It isn't so much for his behavior. Rather, it's because he rejected a relationship with the living God. He broke faith with a God who reached out to him in love, and he refused to depend on him. He inquired sought guidance elsewhere than from the Lord. You see, the whole point, God created you and me for relationship with Him. God is not as interested in our behavior though we think He is. He's not as interested in our behavior as He is a relationship with Him. That's what condemned Saul, and that's what condemns us. If we say, No, I reject you, God. I want to run my own life. I want to be God of my own life and refuse to depend on Him, refuse to be faithful to Him, seek Him, seek a relationship with Him, maintain a love relationship with Him. He will let us go our own way. We're created for relationship with Him. But if we put our our faith in Him and come back to Him and trust Him, He gives us eternal life, which is a restored relationship with Him. You see, hell is separation from God. Eternal life is relationship with Him forever. Remember what Jesus said in His prayer to the Father, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life, a relationship with Him. Death is separation from Him eternally. And if we choose to live life apart from Him, I don't want a relationship with you. I want to run my own life. God will give us that. C.S. Lewis again says, hell is a place where the door is locked from the inside. Hell is a place where the door is locked from the inside. We choose to reject him and he gives us what we choose David Brickner, who's been here from Jews for Jesus, the executive director, says this. I remember Larry King's challenge to me on his television show, Larry King Live, as to whether I believed God would send people to hell for not believing in Jesus. I replied that God isn't in the business of sending people to hell. We are getting there just fine on our own. (laughs) Rather... God is in the business of saving people from hell. And that's exactly why he sent Jesus the Messiah. The distinction is important, he says. Now, you may have questions because when we talk about eternity and eternal damnation, those kinds of things, often we get raised in our minds questions like, "Well, what about infants that don't get a chance to respond? What about people far away in tribal cultures that never get to hear about Jesus? What about them? Well, to be honest, the Bible really doesn't tell us. We have to be a little bit agnostic about that. We can't trust in our knowledge. But we can trust in a God we know is absolutely just and absolutely loving. And that he will do what is just and loving for those who haven't heard. You see, our trust needs to be in him, not in our understanding of mysteries that he has not chosen to reveal to us. Saul falls on his own sword. He commits suicide. I wanted to make a few comments about suicide because I think it's important we think about that. It's it's confusing. Several people, including Saul and his armor-bearer here, in the Scriptures commit suicide. They take their own lives. Let me say that every place it's mentioned in the Scripture, it's always seen as a tragedy. It's never a good choice. It's a rejection of the life of God that He's given us. And it's really a statement of unbelief at that moment, Because it's saying, I don't believe you can be my strength, God, to get me through whatever I'm going through. I need to escape. I need to take my own life. But it's clear also in Scripture that suicide is not the unforgivable sin. It's a tragedy, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And I think we'll see many people who have taken their own lives tragically in heaven. One thing that struck me as I was thinking about King Saul taking his life. Here's an Old Testament example of someone God worked all his life, 40 years, and gave him every taste of God that he could have had, and yet in the end he rejected God and took his own life. We have an example like that in the New Testament. Judas, one of the disciples who walked with Jesus for three and a half to four years, Heard everything, actually physically walked with Jesus, was chosen by Jesus, even were told miracles happened through Judas, all kinds of things happened as one of the disciples, and yet in the end he rejected the Lord, betrayed him, and he also committed suicide. And one other bit of information this chapter we're studying today 1st Samuel 31 the name of God is not mentioned once in the passage all of that the fact they committed suicide the fact that God's name isn't mentioned I think is God kind of saying God had done everything to reach out to Saul God had done everything to reach out to to Judas but in the end their death their rejection of God was their own choice and that's true for everyone, ultimately, who rejects God. It's their own choice to walk away from Him. C.S. Lewis, again, he's done a lot of good thinking about all this. That's why I quote him a lot. He said, there's really only two kinds of people in the world. Those to whom God says, or excuse me, those to who, who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. He gives us what we choose. Well, what's the rest of the story? The rest of the story is there's great tragedy because now the Philistines have reason to celebrate. They cut off Saul's head. They take his armor. They put it in the temple of their gods. It's a horrible ending for Israel, really. The name of God is defamed. When we turn our backs on God and refuse to live as he's called us to and refuse to foster that relationship with him, the name of God is defamed in the end. But then you have this wonderful little ending. The people of Jabesh Gilead, I want to show you a map just so you can kind of see what happened here. So this orients you. The, The Philistines came all the way up here to the battle here in the Jezreel Valley. Here's Mount Gilboa. They won a big victory. They just kill the Israelites, defeat them here. And they take the bodies of Saul and his sons and hang them on the wall at the city of Shan But the people of jabesh Gilead make a 12-mile trip in the middle of the night and go under the Philistines' nose, take the bodies of Saul and his sons, and give them a proper burial. It's really interesting to me that even after all that, all that's happened with Saul, yet God honors him with a proper burial. That's our loving God, our caring God. Why did the people of jabesh Gilead do this? Well, Saul, at the very beginning of his reign as king, rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead when the Ammonites had surrounded the city and said, surrender, and by the way, if you surrender, we're going to gouge out the right eye of every one of you to totally humiliate you. Saul heard about it and came and defeated the Ammonites and the people of Jabesh Gilead never forgot what Saul had done and so they honored him in his death. What do we learn from this story from our discussion today? Well, number one, I think we need to remember as believers, judgment is coming. It is coming. Hell is real. If we choose to walk away from God in an ultimate sense, put our backs to Him, there will be eternal consequences to pay. We may not like it or understand the mystery of what God is doing, but that's the truth. Secondly, that God created us for relationship with Him. And he longs for us to know and love him, to trust him. But he doesn't force us. So if we end up in judgment, it's our choice because we've chosen to walk away from him. Another comment is that God is loving and gracious. He gave Saul many opportunities over 40 years as king to turn to him. But Saul kept moving further and further from God, not closer and closer, and we need to understand that God is loving and gracious even in his judgment. Trevin Wax puts it this way, God gets angry at sin because he is love. He looks at the world and sees the trafficking of innocent children, the destructive use of drugs, the genocidal atrocities in Africa. The terrorist attacks that keep people in perpetual fear, and he, out of love for the creation that reflects him as creator, is rightfully and gloriously angry. The God who is truly scary is not the wrathful God of the Bible. But the one that's scary is the God who closes his eyes to the evil of this world, shrugs his shoulders, ignores it in the name of love. What kind of love is this, anyway? A God who's never angered at sin and who lets evil go by unpunished is not worthy of our worship. The problem isn't that that judgment judgmentless God is too loving. It's that He is not loving enough. And then finally, we need to note the cross is the perfect picture of God's justice and righteousness on the one hand, and his love and grace on the other. Because there we see that sin had to be judged. But that God, in his incredible love, took the punishment for sin on himself. And we can participate. We can enter into that. We can receive that. If by faith we'll simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I trust in your death for me. You see, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We want God to look away and not look at our sin because we're ashamed by it. But God looks directly at our sin and He punishes for it either us or Jesus. Those are the only two options. Is there a literal hell? Clearly, yes, there is. It would be unjust of God not to give people what they choose and eternity apart from Him. There is a literal hell, but there is also the cross where God Himself took His punishment on Himself so we could be eternally forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. Let's pray. How amazing is your love, Lord, when we, so many of us, have chosen to reject you and go our own way, yet you've continued to pursue us like you have Saul and open the door for life if we'll only turn to you to receive the gift of life and forgiveness. If there's anyone here, Lord, that has not done that, may they do so today to receive the free gift of life and not perish. And Lord, for all of us, may we seek to truly live for you as those who have been purchased by your blood. Thank you for the gift of life. We know we don't deserve it, but we receive it gratefully from your hand. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.